Scripture reading this morning will be taken from Luke chapter 12, verse 35 through 40. Luke chapter 12, 35 through 40. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them, so blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Good morning. About this time of year in 1996, a group of experienced mountain climbers sought the prize of all mountains, the peak of Everest. The summit is 29,029 feet from the ocean level. And making such a uh, climb as this requires years of physical training, not just months, but years. It requires years of experience uh, climbing mountains in progression, higher and higher, where the air is thinner and thinner. It requires a reason. In a recent movie about this event called Everest, uh, there was a scene where one of the guides asked everybody, now for the big question, why? Why are you doing this? And everyone had a reason. Some were reasons of hope, because little children were inspired by the task and wanted a certain man to achieve his goal and he thought it might inspire them. Others said, I just have a dark cloud following me wherever I go and I feel like this is something I need to do. And so everybody had a reason. In an unexpected blizzard on their descent, uh, from which uh, several made it to the top, others had to turn back, but on the descent, this blizzard took eight lives, one of the worst disasters in climbing history, even for Everest. And in the last hundred years, there have been over 250 deaths on this climb. And so the guides uh, would tell their climbers um, in various ways, um, there is a great risk in doing this. And everybody understands it when they go up. And yet there are some who must go. They must go and say, I have stood on the top of the world, the world's highest peak. You can hardly breathe up there, but the view, no doubt, is breathtaking. They must go. It's a sobering thought that you would do something like that and risk your life knowing that it, it might, you might succumb to it. But Jesus... In Luke chapter 12, beginning 
in about verse 32 and on down through chapter 13, gives a series of equally sobering admonitions and warnings. Jesus here, for the first time in some detail, looks past his announcement. He had already pronounced that he will be betrayed and arrested and given into the hands of men where he would be uh, crucified. He has already talked about how he will be buried for three days, but then will rise again. But one thing he hasn't dealt with very much yet in the book of Luke is the idea of his return. And here for about a whole chapter, but half the chapter of 12 and and through pretty much 13, he gives about 10 warnings uh, with some intermittent statements and events, but scholars agree that this is a section that Luke decided to give to address this particular uh, area of Christ's life, of His deity, and of, and of the things that we as disciples need to know. And phrases like this will certainly capture your attention. When He said, you be like, you be ready, the Son of Man is coming. Be found in Him so doing. Certainly arrest your attention. And so I'd like to walk with you through these. It'll be similar to last week's style. Uh, each week demands its own style of presentation. Uh, again, this week is one that requires, I believe, because of the, the nature of the subject, to cover this span. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at the tone, which is very, very important. This is not a threat. Look at verse 32. Look at Luke chapter 12 and verse 32. This is not a threat. This is a promise uh, set in, as the wise man said in the Proverbs, it's set in linings of silver. And he says here in verse 32, it's my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is not going to be something that he has, a, a ba- you have to have a bag of tricks to achieve, um, that he hasn't told you enough about, and some of you just aren't going to be able to do it unless you figure it out. This is not anything that is saying to you, you can do it, but really you can't. He's saying to you, it is God's pleasure to give you His kingdom. He is not going to make it so hard that you just can't get in. That's the tone. Now, when He begins to tell you, be like and be ready, He's telling you what you need to know so that when He comes again in all His glory, that you will be able to look forward to His coming and be ready and be, be going up, be lifted up. Have you ever thought about why God did not tell us when Jesus was going to return? Has it ever seemed mysterious to you that Jesus said not even the Son of Man knows the hour? I've often wondered about that. I don't think it has as much to do with God wanting to keep us in suspense as I do Him wanting us to live in a certain mindset. You see, I think if you're like me, if you knew he wasn't coming until 2075, which I'll be gone by then, 
I'm going to be a lot less likely to think there's an urgency to anything in my life. And yet he's told us very clearly, you do not know the hour. You do not know the hour. I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Here's what I want you not just to do. Here's how I want you to live your life. I want you to live your life like this. The first thing he says can be found in verses uh, 33 and 34, where he says, as Caleb read to us in the scripture, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where's your heart supposed to be? He said, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. Be ready. In other words, be dressed with some place to go. Have your lamp lit. Be ready to go. Then he says, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. When he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Be like men, servants, even as he transitions here, a master steward, as we've had some lessons on here recently. Be like a a master steward, a wise master steward who has been given stewardship over something that is not yours. In the broadest sense of the term, we've been given stewardship, that is to have dominion over the earth. What we have also, as Anthony has preached in evening sermons, been given stewardship over some other things, not just our money, not just our time, but we've seen that we've been given stewardship over relationships, our relationship with God and the grace that He has bestowed upon us, our relationship with one another, Be a steward. This is the first impression he wants to make on your mind. You don't own it, but I've entrusted it into your care. What's it? The earth and all of those in it. I've entrusted it to you. Be waiting to give an account to the owner of all this. And be ready when he returns. Be ready for what? Just to give an account? Well, we know that that's not the end he has in mind. He's been talking about the glory of heaven. And in his final months, he'll really highlight the two extremes. The extreme beauty of heaven and the extreme terror of hell. He'll highlight both of those. But here, first of all, he wants you to understand, don't miss out on life. Don't miss out on meeting the one who made you. Someone made you. Don't you want to know who that is? Really, don't you want to know who made you? Wouldn't you like to meet him? Wouldn't you like to live eternally? Some might say, no, actually, I I don't want to keep living on. No, it's not like this. Don't you want to be found ready to go home where the promise of rest actually remains? This is not it. This, This earth is not where we find our permanent place of rest and peace. This is a time of challenge, of trial, of turmoil. Oh, there's great things to enjoy in it. God has gifted us with many great things, including a beautiful day today. It feels so good after a long winter, doesn't it? When the sun comes out, warms things up, and the flowers are blooming, and we have family, 
in our midst and friends. There are wonderful things, but he said, this is just small tastes of what I don't want you to miss out on. So the setting is this kingdom. It's my Father's pleasure to give you this. Okay. So we're to be stewards. Then he says in verses 33 uh, and 34, be a wise investor. Be a wise investor. Notice where he says, in verse 33, sell what you have and give alms. Be an investor. Selling and giving is the opposite of buying and keeping, isn't it? Think about that. Buying, purchasing, and keeping. Possessing, building. He said, instead be an investor. We have learned through the Scripture that he doesn't mean that every disciple sells all things, puts their home on the market, goes homeless. We understand that. However, he is saying, rather than focusing on earthly possessions, make investments in heaven. Wherever your treasure is, there's your heart. Whichever place your treasure is, there's your heart. So instead of buying and keeping, sell and give. That's how you ought to be found when he comes back. As one who's noted, as one who can give. And that's the idea of selling, is that you would have of your extra, as in the book of Acts, the early disciples were selling properties and things to share with those who had need and were suffering from the basic necessities of life lacking. So be an investor. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Thirdly, be a good weatherman. Look at chapter 12 now in verses 54 to 56. He said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? He said you can tell when it's going to rain by looking at the sky. And when the, when the wind's from a certain direction, you're very good at saying that the temperature is going to warm up. He said, but here is the Son of Man working miracles in your midst, fulfilling all prophecy, preaching this gospel of the kingdom that has been foretold from the earliest prophets. And you can't tell that this is a time of salvation? You can't tell that this is a time of repentance? How much more those who live in our day and age when the time is drawing nigh to that day? Well, I don't know when that day is. How do you know we're getting closer? Well, I promise you we're getting closer to it. Again, I say this all the time. The end comes when either He comes and we're still alive or I leave here. And I don't know either one of those. 
I don't know the date on either one of those things. And so I'm to be in this mindset of one who can discern the time. Today is the day of salvation. Why? Because you don't know if you have tomorrow. There's no better time than today to be right with your Creator and to fulfill the, the glory that He intended for you and to return the glory to Him. There's no better time. Be a good weatherman and be able to discern the times like you do the weather. In chapter 12, verses 57 through 59, the last three verses, be a good lawyer. Be a good lawyer. Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him. We would say today, settle out of court. Settle out of court. Lest he drag you to the judge. The judge deliver you to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you've paid the very last penny. If you're going to stand before the judge and you're guilty, settle now out of the arena of judgment. What is this really saying? Make your relationships right, right now. You do not want to go before God and say, Oh, oh God, yeah, here I am. And you've burnt bridges and you've hated people and you're harboring resentment toward that person and that person. That's not ready. That's not Jesus. That's not God's will. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. And so he says, you are on the way to the judge. You're on the way to the judgment day. And I'm telling you, settle on the way quickly. This is a, another rendition later in his ministry from the Sermon on the Mount. Many of these things are. So he's giving it again. Settle out of court. Be a good lawyer. Unsettled disputes will be taken to the Supreme Court. And that's not good without Christ as our advocate. Here's another one. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Compete, or be like, be like an athlete who competes against the clock. Now, where did I come up with that? Well, it's the closest illustration I can come to what he's saying here. There are sports which, in order to win, require strategy against an opponent. And you strive physically with an opponent. Football is probably the most prominent one we think about. Basketball is another one. You review the opponent, his strategy, how they're going to come at you, and you make adjustments, and you also strengthen your strengths, and you, you strive against someone to get the most points. Baseball, strategy. Strategy galore. Many sports are like this, but there are some sports where you can know some things about your opponent, but you can't necessarily strategize to the level, at least, of some of these where you're competing against another person head-to-head -head in a physical wrangling. You might Somebody's probably going to get mad at me and say, no, 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 but something like swimming 
where your training is constantly against the clock. You don't have your opponent to practice against there all the time. You're training against the clock. You may know what your opponent swims and what you got to beat, but your training is against the clock. It's really against who? It's against yourself. A cross-country runner. Oh, there may be some times when they're neck and neck coming down to the end or in track, in a, in a longer running track, even a sprint. There may be some times when you're coming neck to neck and you're pushing it harder because your opponent's right there. But for the most part, you're only going to go as fast as you can go and as fast as you have trained. You're only going to go that fast. Adrenaline can only carry you so much farther. He is saying here that spiritual striving is something we're all competing in, but we're not supposed to be competing against one another. He asked this question. Do you suppose, dear disciples, do you suppose that when Pilate killed some of the Galileans and spitefully mingled their blood in with the animal sacrifices of the priests? Are you thinking in your minds, these Galileans must have been worse sinners than all others? I mean, is your focus on that, that, that they were worse sinners and God did this to them? Or, is your, or have you forgotten that Pilate simply performed an evil deed? This tower in the small village just outside of Jerusalem, this tower of Siloam, it fell and killed 18 people. just fell on them out of the blue. Unsuspecting people unexpectedly died on that day. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all others? Are you thinking that? If you are, you're comparing yourself to others. And here's what we tend to do. When you do that, you say to yourselves, I commend myself. Tower didn't fall on me. I must be better than they. God has not judged me today like He judged those people. And what did He answer to both of those situations. He used current events to illustrate this. The answer is, I tell you, no. They were not worse sinners than you. They were not worse than you. And unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. What do you mean? A tower will fall on me? No. You'll unexpectedly and unsuspectingly be going about your business one day and Boom. Your time is up. And you'll perish being unsuspecting and unexpecting. I, I didn't expect that. I, I wasn't ready for my life to be over. He said, better be like an athlete who's competing against yourself. And stop looking around at everybody else and going, well, at least I'm better than them. That's dangerous. This is a competition, as Paul said, I fight as one who beats the air. That literally is a reference to a boxer shadow boxing. Shadow boxing to strengthen up his quickness and agility in a fight, lest I myself also become disqualified. This fight is also not against or between you and I, is it? It's, it's against the tempter. It's against the tempter. So I'm not really fighting myself. 
I'm striving. I'm striving against sin, the Bible says. And the one who is the father of lies, and may we not believe the lies that he has told us. Chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. Be a fruitful tree. Be a fruitful tree. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. Be a fruitful tree, and while you have today, let Jesus Christ, the keeper of God's house, the master steward of his house, the keeper of the vineyard, let him cultivate your heart. Let his words have a way with you that prepares you to receive nourishment, to receive truth, and respond to it in such a way that you begin to produce fruit in your life by the Holy Spirit and for the name of God and the glory of God. Be a fruitful tree, else you'll be cut down. Be like a mustard plant, the smallest of all herbs. If you took a finely sharpened pencil and just tapped it on a piece of paper, that's about the size of a mustard seed. He said, yet, Jesus said, it grows up into the greatest of all the herbs. It can become a, a, a large bush and even a tree. He said, you ought to be like that. But it's not the greatest of all the seeds, but it bears the greatest potential. And if you start, as he said in another place, with faith like a mustard seed, just a little bit, start with the faith that you do have, Yes, we're weak in faith. Start with where you are and grow what you have because blessed is he whom his master finds so doing, as in the account, the last chapter of the master steward. Blessed is he. This is not about being found, having done. Coming back and saying, did you do everything? Let me see your list. This is not about being found perfect. This is about being found so doing. That means at every stage of growth, people will enter into the kingdom and will be rewarded in heaven. At every the newborn Christian, a day old Christian, and those who have been stalwarts of the faith. For 30, 40, 50, 60, some 70, or even 80 years. Be like a mustard seed. Be like a baker, verses 20 and 21, which, like a, a woman who takes leaven and hides it in three measures of meal to make three loaves. She puts a little in each one, and it bears its influence in each of those loaves that will provide the sustenance for her household. Be like that. Like what? Let the words of the kingdom, the words of life, the gospel, permeate your life thoroughly. Don't leave anything 
undone. Don't leave any stones unturned. Let the gospel reach into every area of your heart and provide the influence to change those things which are out of harmony with God's will. Allow that to... Well, I just have a... Let him cultivate. Let him water. God will give the increase if you give him your heart. A person should be like, well, in verses 22 through 30, it should be like someone who wants to go to heaven. Look at verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. You don't just waltz into heaven. You strive to get there. It's not easy. Many will seek it. And he says, and on the Sermon on the Mount, many will enter in through the wrong gate. And they'll proclaim on that day, Lord, Lord, they took the wide gate wherein was the easy way. You know, the easy Christianity that doesn't ruffle my feathers and make me uncomfortable too much like this sermon and all these teachings that Jesus are doing to me right now. It's just tell me some things that make me feel good. I mean, man, it's Easter Sunday here too. Come on, man. It's my Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's His pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's the good news. What He's doing now is prodding us to get ready. Come on, get ready. You're going to miss out. You're going to miss out. Don't forget that that's what this is couched in. And a great question is asked here. A great question. Lord, he doesn't say how many. He says, are there few that are going to be saved? This sounds really hard. You're talking about people coming to Judgment Day thinking they're going to get in and, and they're not going to get in. Are there few who are going to be saved? What's his answer there? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. Well, that doesn't seem fair. I'm telling you right now how to get ready. You know what's a shame? Is God packing human beings full of potential and us squandering it and then shaking our fists at God as if He didn't prepare us, as if, as if it's too hard, as if we can't, as if my own human nature is too much to overcome? The whole message of the Word of God is I can through Christ who strengthens me, I will. That's the whole message. And so for those who are struggling about saying, I just can't, I just can't, he's saying, you can, you got to start with where you're at. Just start. And live like a person who wants to go to heaven. Be a doer, not a talker. And he said, they'll come from all over the world. There'll be people in heaven from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. They'll all be coming in. And he says, oh Israel, what a shame. If you're not there, imagine that, the, the children of Abraham being locked out, knocking on the door, and there's no answer. Be ready. And finally, at the end of this chapter, be like, be like a chick. I kind of like it like, 
It's more manly to put on the armor of God. You know, I want to fight. It's a fight. Paul says, it's a fight. Jesus said, first you really need to be like a little chick. I saw some at TSC yesterday. I was in there buying some seed. You know, all the chicks, ducks, stuff. When they clear all them out, they'll bring in all the rabbits. I fell for that a couple times. Little chicks. You look at them. We, this is one picture kind of like shepherding that we don't get in our society very much anymore. Some of you have chickens, but we still don't usually raise them for meat and, and self-reproduce the chickens. Like In other words, have a rooster and allow the hens to have broods. We eat those eggs as fast as they can in. We don't need a rooster. Just give me a dozen chickens. They'll lay for a couple, three years real good. When they stop, chicken dinner, I'll go get, they're like a buck a piece at TSC. I'll go get a bunch more. But those who were living in self-sustaining agricultural environments obviously were raising their own broods. And when a, a storm would come, you would see those chicks running underneath the mama hen, and she put her arms out. Now, I've, I've seen this in the woods with wild turkeys. I had the pleasure of seeing that once with a, a hen turkey with her wings out over her poults on a limb. It was awesome. I picture that in my mind, and he said, you just need to be like one of those little chicks. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He said, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted Listen to his desire. This is the desire of the son of the one who said, it's my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How I longed, how I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You were the little chick out there running through the storm thinking you're just fine. And it's all cute until you catch pneumonia. It's all cute until you become spiritually sick and you're not underneath as we sing the shelter of his wings. Jesus wraps up these admonitions here and he'll touch on them again, but Luke seems to want to capture this series of lessons that begin with pleasure of God to give you the kingdom and wind down with Jesus longing to gather you under his wings with some pretty sobering admonitions. But do you see how they're couched like parentheses around those words? They're sobering. They're humbling. He appeals to heaven. He appeals to hell. In other words, he appeals to my desire to go on to a better place. He also appears, appeals to To my apathy by striking the fear of God in me, of meeting my Creator and not being what He created me to be. Yes, both are intended. Both motivations are intended. Both are useful. But I'm not striving to not go to hell. I'm striving to receive that kingdom from the Father. We have a taste of it here with the church and the love that we share with each other in this family. We have a taste of it. I love how we're growing it here. I love, I love the, the vibe. I love the sense of urgency we're, we're growing into here. 
But I appeal to you that today is the day of salvation. We don't know if we have tomorrow. And so while we are led in this song, I want to encourage you to make the decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ and let Him wash away your sins in the waters of baptism, confessing Him as your Lord. Let's stand and sing.